there's some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird kick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and looked back, and that's when I thought I saw one. actually attacked two railroad workers, uh, killed livestock, you know, just a lot of weird stuff that was going on. Monsters and Lake Monsters, and we've added a new co-host, Julie Wrench. Say hi, Julie. Hey, how's everybody? Yep, and our guest today is longtime Loch Ness investigator, William McDonald. He is a forensic and private investigator and has done much work investigating several different fields of the paranormal. Uh, Welcome, Bill. Hey, can you guys hear me okay? Yep, Yep. fine. So um, it's kind of an old Facebook friend that I uh, hooked up with uh, on Facebook, mm-hmm. and it turns out uh, that you and I had a lot of interests in common. Oh, absolutely. So we want you to talk about your theory about lake monsters being eels, and at some point I would like to talk about the controversial Loch Ness tooth. As well. Well, the controversial Agnes tooth is uh, kind of anticlimactic. Um, I do not have possession of the tooth. That was one of the rumors. Uh, yeah. Another rumor was that it was an antler of one of those small species of Asian deer that had gotten loose in England, south of Hadrian's Wall, mm-hmm. uh, that um, still exists as a feral and um, alien animal. It, uh, it's, it's like rabbits in Australia. It's kind of mm-hmm. taken to the countryside. But the Loch Ness Tooth is actually a tooth. And the reason we know it's a tooth, and let's forget about any of the anecdotal stuff. Let's just take a look at those photo images that you put all over your Facebook and mine. Those photo images show a fish's tooth 
and the root of a fish's tooth that is designed to shed after X amount of time. Mm-hmm. Now, when people think teeth, they think spiky-looking roots, like what you and I have and like what apes have. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case with fish or with reptiles where the tooth is designed to shed after X amount of time of being used and replaced mm-hmm. by the tooth behind it. Yeah. So, and you think this was a vomerine tooth, right, in the roof of the mouth? I believe that it is a, a, a tooth that grew out of the vomer bone, which is specifically a bone that is found in the roof of the mouth of specific types of bony fish, your Orthes ichthys, and also in certain types of reptiles, including prehistoric reptiles, yeah. and uh, also in your uh, amphibians, specifically uh, certain kinds of frogs, certain kinds of salamanders, Yeah. Uh, what a lot of people know as tetrapods. Yeah, well, I know mosasaurs had vomerine teeth in the roof of their mouth. Eels, prime example mm-hmm. of an osteichthyes fish family that carries mm-hmm. teeth along the roof of its mouth, either in double rows, single rows, or in some cases mismatched rows. Yeah. Well, do you want of that tooth is to prevent prey from escaping out of the mouth. As uh-huh. the prey struggles, it works its way further down into the throat. Which might conceivably explain that little denticle coming off the side of it as an extra okay. hook. Very interesting that you brought that up. All right, first of all, that's not on the side of the tooth. That is on the back of the tooth. Ah. The surface of a tooth, any tooth, whether it's yours, mine, or a fish's, that faces toward the throat is called the distal face, which means the back face of the tooth. Yeah. So what you're describing is what's called a distal barb. Now, you don't yeah. see distal hmm. barbs in a whole lot of species, ranging from mollusks all the way up to reptiles, but you do see them in eels. Well, and that's called a distal barb. Yeah, I've seen a similar structure on the rostral teeth of an extinct giant sawfish. I think it's called Oncopristus. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's it's a similar it's a similar concept in nature. That would be a parallel evolutionary um thing to have a distal barb. Yeah. But where you don't find it is in the mouth of um especially the mandibular teeth of most of your reptiles and amphibians. You won't find it in a lot of fish, and mm-hmm. it's definitely not something that you're going to find with most mollusks. For instance, it is actually a tooth that is the tip of the harpoon of the cone snail, which typically will um, plunge a harpoon out of its siphon and into a fish with um, putting conotoxin in it that immobilizes the fish immediately and yeah. can immobilize you and I within about 30 to 40 seconds. Yeah. And um another example is um 
you've seen the hooks that will grow on certain species of fish, not just on the suction cups, but in rows beside the suction cups. Uh, I mean, squids, species don't you? of Arctuthis. Yeah, 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 on squids, yeah. Now, um, probably that does the uh, Humboldt squid has hooks like that, right? The Humboldt squid, the giant squid, and most importantly, the colossal <clears throat> squid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't you explain to us about, you were telling me on the phone recently about how when you were 16, you started noticing the eels making humps in the aquariums? Oh, that's easy. Um, I used to work for World's Largest Pet Center, which was part of the Russo's Pet Store chain in Southern California, specifically Orange County, California, back in the late 70s and very, very uh, the first two years of the 1980s. And they had uh, fish rooms in all the pet stores, and they had a very large fish room at World's Largest Pet Center, and there was a while when I was in charge of all four fish rooms. So I had a lot of experience dealing with every kind of fish that you could get your hands on, uh, whether freshwater or saltwater, and I would hand-build the tanks and everything. And we started messing with both true eels, which were um, either some branch of form or, uh, you know, um, your, uh, your common eels and your... Um, Conger eels and uh, morays, of course, were the easiest mm. ones to get uh, that were salt water or fresh to salt, salt to fresh. And yeah. I noticed in one of my 2,000-gallon um, tanks that the largest of the eels, the eels that it attained over six feet in length, whether it was a knife fish, which is what your electric eel is, or whether it's a true eel, like your anguilliform eels, which are the most common ones that we can get our hands on in, in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, we found out that they were uh, gulping air. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we expect that with electric eels because they even live in mud rather than water. Yeah. But we don't expect that with common eels, but um, anguilliform eels, which are true eels, uh, all over the world they do the same thing. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether they live at depth. It doesn't matter whether they live at um, the surface. Um, with the exception of the mores, which are also anguilliform, even though they don't have pictorial fins, uh, all of them like to occasionally gulp air. Yeah. Now, the other thing is anguilliforms, with the exception of the mores, which prefer tropical temperatures. There are exceptions, but they prefer tropical temperatures in excess of 80 degrees. They all gulp water, but they're all high-energy eels, uh, high-energy metabolisms compared to a lot of fish, so they require a lot of oxygen. The colder the water, the more oxygen, the more dissolved water is in the oxygen. If they're not getting enough oxygen, all eels and your knife fish, specifically your electric eels, will go to the surface and they'll gulp air to augment uh, the need for air. Now, other fish that do that are your genus Channa, which includes your um, snakehead fish from Southeast yep. Asia. Mm-hmm. Those aren't eels, but they look eel-like. Uh, yeah, they're also, similar to both ends in their appearance. Well, absolutely. And then the other thing, but there's actually, that's genus Amia, and both ends are not 
closely related to uh, Asian fish at all. They're actually mostly North American and European. But, uh, again, where we're going with this is your um, bettas, your Siamese fighting fish, you know, your little tiny decorative fish that you get at Walmart. Yeah. They're air gulpers just like their relatives, the snakeheads are air gulpers. And like electric eels, they can basically live in a freaking puddle. Yeah. Oh. And they can handle extremely dirty water. Yeah. With low oxygen, lots of mud, lots of detritus, lots of rot, lots of bacteria. It doesn't matter. They stay healthy. Yeah. Now, all your lakes and your deep oceans yeah. average between 42 degrees at the high end, which is Loch Ness, Mm-hmm. and 28 degrees worldwide, which is the temperature of the ocean at depth. But since the freezing point of water is 32 degrees Fahrenheit, deep ocean water does not turn to ice because of its salinity and because uh-huh. of the pressure and density of the water at depth. So uh-huh. it can't turn to ice. But anything that lives down there has got to be able to function in sub-freezing temperatures, the same temperatures that killed everybody that uh, died on the Titanic after they hit the water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hypothermia is not an issue for eels, and Loch Ness is 42 degrees year-round, regardless of the temperature of the ocean that it empties into, yeah. regardless of the snow, um, the the soft powder that you get in the Grampian Mountains on the south, and yeah. um, the northern mountains, uh, it stays 42 degrees year-round. And that's mm-hmm. still pretty cold. That's wetsuit temperatures, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So you've got to have an animal that can handle 42 degrees and snow and ice and four hours of daylight in the dead of winter. Yeah. Because northern Scotland is close to the Arctic Circle, just like, uh, you know, most of Alaska is. It's yeah, roughly yeah, the same yeah. latitude. People don't realize that, but it is. Yeah. So I mean, you can still have, in the summertime, you can still have sunlight at Loch Ness, I think, until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Correct. And at that point, um, you don't get a whole lot of Loch Ness sightings, despite what everybody says, because um, you've got a lot of boat traffic on the lake. Yeah. The lake has a huge contingent of summer users, just like a lot of the northeast lakes in uh, New England and upper New York State. Mm-hmm. Lake Champlain is another example of a high-use lake at the surface in the summertime where you have almost no boat traffic of any kind in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So your monsters got to be able to survive in those environments. Also, in the dead of winter, you don't have a whole lot of fish or um, food to feed on. So you have to have an animal that can go for up to six months between meals. And that is not any form of archaeosaur, which includes your crocodilians, or dinosaur, which has a high metabolism like birds mm-hmm. or lizards or anything else like that. It's starved to death. It freezes to death. And even plesiosaurs, which were also high energy, and your chronosaurs and your mosasaurs, which are basically close relatives of genus Varanus, of your monitor lizards. And they, by the way, have um, vomer teeth 
in the roof of their mouth. Yep. Um, I'm talking about the Mosasaurus. I haven't seen yeah. that in Komodo dragons. But yeah. uh, very closely related to Komodo dragons, uh, Australian goannas, and um, several other species that are noted in Southeast Asia. Megalena prisca was a huge example, but also I've never seen any teeth in that one's bomber bone. But its closest relative extinct was your Mosasaurus. Yeah, yeah. So, again, it tells us a lot. Now, then there was a contingent of people who said that the tooth was a fake. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, I'm a private detective, okay? I mean, I love wildlife and everything, but I'm not a lettered zoologist. I'm not a lettered, lettered paleozoologist. And yeah. I am a forensic artist, and I am a, a private detective, and I'm also a cop. I work in the prison systems in the Southwest Desert. Yeah. So I've got a lot of knowledge, but I'm not one of these lettered guys with a Ph.D. that works at a zoo. Yeah. So what qualified mm-hmm. me is because I did my work in the field and I was focused on, okay, what can be a realistic lake monster that can, A, uh, attack people, and, B, scare the shit out of people, and see, match the descriptions by the actual locals that live in the Great Glen, which mm-hmm. is an animal with a horse head, a mane oh. that does pumps. The long neck plesiosaur is not what the locals have been describing at Loch Ness or Lake Champlain. That's what the tourists describe. That's what the party rats describe. That's what the transients describe. That's what the liars describe. And there's been a lot of hoax photos, mm-hmm. which is also broad daylight mm-hmm. in the middle of the warm season, which is also complete and total BS because in high traffic areas, your boats make a lot of noise, and whatever your monster is, it's going in the opposite direction. Now, where can a Loch Ness monster find solace from all of the boat traffic and all the noise at the surface? And the same with Lake Champlain. They go to the very most deep parts of the lake. They go where there are crevices. They go where there are overhangs. They go where there are any kind of tunnels or piles of boulders that have gaps in between that they can slither into. So you think they're they're uh, staying around the bottom and the sides of the lakes? During the summer. Yeah. That would also now, be perfect winter, hiding places no for sonar as well. How are, you, how are you going to find something on sonar when it's literally inside the bottom? Yeah, exactly. These lakes have deep layers exactly. of silt that things can hide on the bottom under. If you want to catch Champ, Nessie, Ishii, Pogopogo, or any of the um, Scandinavian monsters, you got to be up there in the dead of winter. you got to be running sonar under the ice. You have to be in a boat that is not using propellers or rotors. You have to not be generating a lot of sound. Mm-hmm. Then you can also throw out your bait, such as herring, which is a really great eels in the lakes. Uh, but remember, they also pick crustaceans off the bottom. Yeah. 
and uh, they'll eat smaller fish. Yeah, I've seen thing. I've seen crayfish in Lake Champlain as big as my hand. I mean, really big ones. Yeah, and, and uh, large eels are going to eat those easy. I mean, um, one of the primary dietary uh, constituents of um, anguilla rostrata, which is the American common eel, which includes the population in Lake Champlain, is crawdads. Yeah. Crayfish. Mm-hmm. They'll also eat freshwater crabs. Yeah. They will peck prey off the bottom as well as seizing any hapless fish, moray eel style. Yeah. They'll also eat garbage dumped by us. Yeah. My understanding, too, is that as they're migrating, they sometimes hang out in salt marsh areas, you know, brackish water areas. Okay, those aren't the big ones. Those are the babies, the elvers. Yeah. The elvers are yellowish silver in color. And they range between, um, I want to say, about nine inches and three feet. They're not fully mature. Yeah. And they don't head up into um, the higher river and lake systems until they've reached sexual maturity at between three and six feet. So they're hanging out in these brackish water areas waiting to, to, to grow and to get larger. On their right, way in. and brackish water areas gives you a lot more prey and is a lot less subject to deprivations from the seasons. Um, estuaries winter a lot better than lakes do as far as the fish that are inhabiting underneath. Yeah. Everything else literally um, is binge feeding when the salmon and the trout in um, the summer come. And then they are literally um, just having to go anywhere from um, two and a half months to almost six months without a large meal or any meal. Uh-huh. Now, anguilliform eels, with the exception of the mores, have um, come up with an additional strategy to get food in the winter. You've heard of land sightings of Nessie. Oh, absolutely. There are land sightings of Cham, too, and the other. And when do you get those land sightings? Well, I know know some of them are uh, the most famous Nessie land sighting probably was the Spicer sighting in November of 1933. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was July of 1933. But okay, Arthur so Grant sighting of, happened in January 1934. Happen? What time of day did it happen? I think it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. That one that you're actually citing is an exception. Now, I've interviewed hundreds of people living in the farms. These are all relatives uh, of um, British Special Forces, British Royal Marines, and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Highlanders and um, the original uh, Black Guard and all of those guys. Uh, during Gulf War One, when I was overseas, I got to meet a lot of Brits. And they all had relatives that lived in the Great Glen. Mm-hmm. And so I got to go interview those guys in um, 2004 and 2005. And it's night sightings. And it's usually in November 
through late February. Winter. Well, like like I said, mm-hmm. Arthur Grant had his land sighting in January 1934, I think around midnight. Exactly. That is yeah. when they come out of the water and they slide out onto the land, yeah. slithering like snakes. Yeah, well, the the reason I said November 1933, I got confused. That's when uh, Hugh Gray took his famous photograph, was in November of 1933. Right. Yeah. Eels come out at night. Eels come out in the dead of winter. Eels come out. Seems like I recall no... reading that the record that they know about was that an ungulate eel had been out of water for three days. Absolutely, they can be out of water for two weeks. Wow. The swim bladder acts like a lung, and as long as they continue to generate that slime on them, that keeps their skins moist and their yeah. eyes moist. Um, then they can migrate between water sources. Well, now, you've actually found slime trails at Loch Ness, right? I've seen pictures. I found a slime trail of an animal that had to be in excess of 18 feet in length that also compressed the mud to the point where the damn thing had to have weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, four to 600 pounds. Yeah, well, I I know there's several... Uh, associated with several of these Nessie land sightings, there have been trails of flattened vegetation and slime reported, you know, from a bunch of classic uh, Nessie land sightings. Huh. Right. Now, the other thing is eel slime, and this was in the dead of winter, and it was in a heavily forested area right near Invermarston, mm-hmm. uh, right where the... Uh, um, Marston River empties into Loch Ness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you know, Loch Ness runs from the uh, southwest to the northeast. But it was on the north side, uh, approximately one-third of the way up heading, um, you know, if if you go from Fort Augustus at the headwaters, yeah. it's about oh, a third of the way up shore uh, heading back toward Inverness. Now, Fort Augustus is all the way down at the southern end, right? Fort Augustus is um, the uh, town at the southern end. It's a tourist town, an art yeah. colony. Yeah. That was a military outpost back when um, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie Charlie or whatever his name was. Bonnie uh, Prince Charlie, with, yeah. This would with have been uh, back, General Gage. Back during... It, uh, it was late oh, 17... Early 1700s, late uh, 1600s, early, early somewhere 1700s. in there. It was it was after the 1600s. Mm. Anyway, um, I'm Scottish myself. I'm a MacDonald, which makes me a freaking sheep shagger as far as uh, a lot of the locals are concerned. Yeah. Because my ancestors swept down from the inner and outer Hebrides and the Upper West Highlands and raped and pillaged all of the Grants, all of the Uquarts, all of the uh, Campbells. All of them that lived up there, uh, we raped and pillaged. We took the best-looking women and livestock, and we burned everything else. Mm. So well, that's my ancestry. I think Julie might have a question or two. Go ahead, Julie. Well, hey, yeah, um, getting back to that, too, for people who don't know the backstory, Bill, could you kind of uh, fill us in on exactly where that tooth was found and the circumstances surrounding it? Oh, right, right, right. Okay. 
1993, I found a kill zone, an area where um, uh, sheep bones and uh, deer bones had been crushed. Right on the shore in the Glendale region, um, it's it's, um, on the south shore, heading uh, about uh, three-quarters of the way back toward Fort Augustus. It is called Glendale. Glendo, mm-hmm. and there's a waterfall that runs um, from the mountain down uh, through all of these scrub oak and into the um, and it's thoroughly mossy and everything. And the That's water's Foyers, really isn't it? Uh, Foyers is further northeast. Oh, I know. Foyers was another location. Foyers yeah. was another location where I got a ton of evidence. But uh, right now we're in Glendo discussing mm-hmm. the waterfall and the kill zone. So I discovered that in 1993 when uh, Paramount Television sent me up there for a TV series called Sightings. And my job was actually as a private investigator checking up on the behavior and uh, the money spending of the teams that they'd sent up there to film. But while touring the lake, I saw the waterfall, I saw the bones, I saw how crushed up they were, and I knew that it was an animal kill zone. I didn't at the time yet figure out that the hunter was aquatic that had come out of the water to kill animals on the shore that were drinking. Mm-hmm. The bones belonged to both livestock and wildlife. Uh, everything that was killed was an ungulate, meaning that it was either a sheep or a deer. Um, ungulates are animals that have uh, either odd numbers of toes or even numbers of toes where the toe is a hoof. Those are called ungulates. Anyway, so um, fast forward to 2005, uh, or it was 2004 when I made contact. There was a young man who had gone to Inverness and Loch Ness to party before he was going to go to Harvard Law School. Now, his dad uh, was senior partner in one of the largest law firms inside of one of the most Republican states in the upper Midwest, um, on the east side of the upper Midwest. I'm not going to identify the state. Uh, I'm under contract to never identify these people. Grandpa was a sitting U.S. senator. And I signed contracts and promises in writing that I would not divulge the identity of the people. And I'll tell you why. Number one, the kid kind of ran afoul of the law um, in Invernessshire, which is the county that Loch Ness and the Great Glen is in. Second, the law firm's reputation could have been compromised by association with anything paranormal. And we all know that that kind of crap happened. And third, it could have messed up the ongoing re-election campaign for Grandpa, who is the senator. So Grandpa and the lawyers came down on me, and these people were kaiju, you know, from, you know, like, you know, like Godzilla. I mean, they, they, these people were political monsters, and there was no way that I was going to cross them. There's no way I was going to go against them. I would have been just eaten up and killed immediately. So um, they gave me the photographs. They gave me some negatives, but mostly it was electronics. And they gave me um, the full description, and I interviewed the kid and the whole thing like that. And what they were all incensed about was that somebody who had the badge, the uniform, and everything, who was a water bailiff, 
A water bailiff is like a cross between a sheriff deputy and a forest ranger whose job is to prevent poaching or um, mishandling of privately owned livestock and also protects the deer in the area because it's the red deer, it's an elk, and they are carefully managed. Also, they carefully manage their forests. You have sections of forests that are at full growth. You have sections that are logged and sections of new planted areas that are growing up in various stages all around Loch Ness. So it's wildlife and it's uh, also harvesting of uh, the trees, logging, all of that. It's heavily managed. So you got these water bailiff guys. Now, apparently what happened was um, they were cruising around in an open boat and they saw something that looked like a carcass on the shore and they went up to it and they started taking pictures. And what they discovered was that it was a deer, a doe, no antlers, no nothing, about 350 pound doe, but it was only half of her. Oh, there's a video too. Yeah. Um, they, they shot images of her. And what happened was um, they found something odd-looking. It turned out to be the um, the roots, which is just a ridge of keratinaceous material that kind of feels like dried algae when you touch it. That was the root, and they pulled it out, and it was the tooth. And the tooth was wow. approximately three and a half inches long, which later on... You know, when you take an anguilliform meal or a moray and you do a ratio of the length of the vomerine teeth to the length of the head, um, you, you there's a standard there. If you apply the standard and upsize everything mathematically, the mathematically works out to it being the head of an animal with a six-foot gape. A six-foot head with a six-foot gape. Oh. And Tyrannosaurus rex is four and a half foot head with approximately a four foot gape. And mosasaurs can have longer heads and bigger gapes. And the largest living crocodiles today are about five and a half feet, you know, for the salties with approximately um, four foot, nine inch gape. Yeah. And, um, there's no dispute, even the most rabid skeptic has to admit that there are 10-foot conger eels as big around as a telephone pole. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's you, and I, you, you and I have you, you sent me lots of photos of 9-foot eels with, uh, that weighed 163 pounds. Yeah. Um, the biggest eel I ever caught was about 8-foot 4 inches and weighed about 160. 58, about 158 pounds, I think. And you caught this off Plymouth, England, right? Yeah, uh, you get a, a healthy population uh, around Cornwall and Plymouth. Yeah, the, which is also with the, the Morgauer sea monster, too, which is interesting. Listen, there's only two viable candidates for sea monsters in the ocean, um, eels and oarfish. Mm-hmm. Nothing else fits the cultural descriptions around the world. And I'm not just talking Europe. 
I'm talking Southeast Asia, Thailand, everything like that. And all eels and oarfish are worldwide species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all you know, get big enough to where, um, you know, if it would impress anybody, especially yeah. somebody in the well, 15 me, or 1400s. You know, to me looking at it, the conger eel, to me, is the best of of, of what we, we is accepted by standard science at this point is the best fit. But they supposedly will not live in fresh water. But now you have an answer to that. I'll let you Oh, I certainly it. do. But first of all, Anguilla Anguilla is a pretty good fit, too. Yeah. And that species is common year-round in Loch Ness. Oh, yeah. Which will take me to the foyer story in a minute. Yeah. The, but let's get back to the, um, to the, the conger. Um, I caught a conger. It was a small one. I stuck it in a bucket, and I decided that I was going to put it in a saltwater tank at the Aqua Classics Gallery in Laguna Beach, and this was in the uh, early 80s. Um, and Monique Crowley, a French woman who became an American citizen, and her much younger boyfriend ran the gallery. This is in Laguna Beach, and they had a huge tank. And I put the conger in it just to see what would happen. And the conger was fine until the gallery closed down. And then I had an emergency because I didn't have an available tank. I was no longer with World's Largest Pet Center, and I did not have an immediate tank to put it in. And I was desperate. And I called up Peter Paulot. I called up everybody I knew, and they all said, no, we're not taking your eel. That's freaky. Uh, the koi pond people, they wouldn't let me do it. Finally, I went to my neighbors uh, on Crete Street. I'm up on Balearic. Uh, we're, we're that big terrace above Monarch Bay, California. And I go to John and Carol Coe and I say, hey, um, I've got this fish. I got it, it won't bother your koi, um, and it eats crayfish. And I had already stocked their pond with crayfish. And I said, um, I need to put um, my eel in it. Well, I figured she'd die. And I figured it was a female because she was so damn robust. You know, the males are not as robust. And they die a whole lot easier. Well, I took the bucket. She's in this kind of rancid salt water at this point. And I just, and, and remember, this is a big pond, so the amount of salt in the uh, bucket is not going to affect the koi, which are carp. And they're large carp, but that, even goldfish can handle a little bit of salt in the water. Sometimes that's how you treat them for ick. But anyway... So I just let the water intermix just with an inch, an inch of the um, uh, surface. And the eel was there for like three, four, five hours. And then she got all squirrely and she got all flippy. And now the salt water was getting busted out of the bucket and fresh water was intermixing and everything. And she started to thrash. And, you know, now it's nighttime in Southern California, and I'm sitting there with the flashlight just watching what's going on. And all of a sudden, she slipped out of the, the bucket and straight into the water. So now I couldn't see her, so I went home. Next day I came back, 
And it took me a while to find her, but she was in a sheltered area of the pond where there was a rock overhang. Remember, it's a cement pond, but it's made in the Japanese, um, you know, the Japanese garden style. So and, in other words, uh, you, you came back expecting to find her dead, and she wasn't dead. Yeah, and if she was dead, I had to remove her immediately so she wouldn't foul the uh, the, the lake, mm-hmm. which I helped build, by the way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, she was still alive. And I didn't bother her because I figured she was stressed out enough. Mm-hmm. Um, every day I went back, she was still alive. I checked every day. Don Coe was like, she's going to die. She's a saltwater fish. And I said, yeah, but her closest relatives are catadromas. Yeah, I mean, conger eels and and the the freshwater eels, they look so much alike, you would think that they would be able to to make the the transition, you know? The the differences in physical form are, are very subtle. But every day she was alive. And, um... After a while, I noticed a decrease in the, um, and about six months later, I noticed a decrease in my uh, crawdad population. And um, I found bits and pieces of crawdads. And I know it wasn't the koi that were eating them. The koi uh, will eat insects. They're, they're insectivorous, but they like vegetable. And they eat those pellets. Uh, yeah. We've got the gold pellets, we've got the green pellets, and we have the pink pellets you know, in order to bring out their colors and everything. And we're very careful. Quite are very expensive, but if you take good care of them, they grow big and they live to be 75 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we have large goldfish uh-huh. also in there for algae control. And they also ate flake food. And did you know that a goldfish can grow to be six feet long? No, I didn't know that. I've seen some it's also a carp. Boys, it's though. not a koi. Yeah. It's a carp. They're all basically descendants of Chinese carp that the Japanese monkeyed with uh, in the process of domestication. Huh. Well, there, are people wild, know um, there are wild goldfish in Lake Champlain that people have released that yeah. are still and, out there. And some of them might grow to be four and a half, six feet long. You can actually Google pictures, world's largest goldfish. Wow. Uh, and you'll notice the eye never grew in proportion with the rest of the body. Eyes stay small. Eye sockets yeah. fill with muscle. Well, I've seen I've seen some big carps, you know, just regular carps. Mm-hmm. Yep. Catch. But I didn't know that, that the goldfish themselves would get that big. Oh, hell yeah. So wow. anyway, and it's not all of them. It's you, you might have, if you dump 100 comet feeders into a, the lake, and none of them ever got eaten by a predator. You might have two that get big. The rest were medium-sized uh-huh. or whatever. Um, but there's always about two of them within every 100 that have the genetic propensity to get to the size uh, to where you need two arms and the damn thing is as heavy as one of those giant cats. Yeah, so how long did your conger eel live in this pond? Uh few days shy of four years. Hmm. By that time, she was climbing out of the water like an anguilla, anguilla, and the garden snail problem that Southern California people have uh, had been eliminated because she was eating garden snails on land. Hmm. You see, 
This eel was eventually killed by a dog, correct? Yeah. Um, one of the rye puppies that I sold to one of the neighbors grew up big and strong. And one day, um, the fence on these properties was bamboo and these large wood slats. It was very rustic and very Japanese. It was a Japanese garden. And it was roughly a quarter of an acre. Anyway, the dog dug under the fence, and uh, um, I found uh, a, a healthy chunk of the eel, and eventually I found the chewed up head. The, the dog mm-hmm. killed the eel. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I wish we yeah, had more time. We're, we're we got we're probably got about ten minutes. So. Okay. Let Why me run you... the Foyers thing by you real quick. Yeah, okay, then. sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Foyers has this large, um, there's three large pipes that run from the Foyers River, uh, sidelines it, and runs through this hydroelectric power plant. Half the power plant looks like an old Scottish castle, and half the power plant is modern. But the water system includes these giant turbine blades. And uh, twice to three times a year, they have to pull the brake on the turbines, and then they have to apply power to make the turbines reverse so they can blow out all the crud and debris from the upper mountains from the prior winter out the back pipes back into the Foyers River, and then that shit just gets washed all the way down to um, uh, Loch Ness uh, right through the community that is Foyers. Now, Foyers is the hydroelectric power plant, a salmon and trout fish farm, and the uh, community of people that live there that populate that area, along with a few families that are involved in the infrastructure of the nine communities around the lake. Uh, Those are your hydroelectric power plant people, your electrical people, um, the people that in the dead of winter and the dead of night either have to go up a power pole or dig up a trunk line and make a repair, or they have to go down into the sewer area. Some of the sewers are over 600 years old in the, the nine communities and uh, clean something out in order to get, you know, the flow. Uh, but Loch Ness has, um, even the sewage treatment facilities are very high-tech. Uh, they don't pollute their lakes. They are so good at this. But one of the interesting things is is that when you're reversing the pressure and blowing out the pipes, you're sucking water in from Loch Ness, and you're sucking in fish. And those giant blades are chopping everything up. Now, I interviewed, um, and the trick is, you can't go up there as a monster hunter. You can't go up there as anything other than a guy who um, is a student from the University of California at San Diego, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, or from um, you know one of the universities in New England, and you're associated with Woods Hole, or whatever. So my pretext was is that I was a fish biologist looking for evidence of gia, genus Amelia in the Scottish Lake systems, because there are 100 million year old fossils of genus Amelia, both which. Alive and well, by the way, in North America. It's a living yeah. fossil like a coelacanth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so genus Amia, uh you had uh, you know, these six to nine foot bowfins that are in the same fossil record as your plesiosaurs and your ichthyosaurs that they find all over the British Isles. 
you know, all of the, all of the big ichthyosaur and plesiosaur skeletons, those are some of the most common skeletons that are found in the fossil record up there. Well, there's oh, all kinds of prehistoric fish up there, too, including mm-hmm. genus Amia. Yeah. And the skeletons are virtually identical with the much smaller example of the species of genus Amia that exists today in the Midwest and here in Arizona. Well, yeah, they're in Lake Champlain, too. And they're also in Kansas, and they're in Arizona, and they're in Montana, and they're in yep. Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And you remember the Pine Lake Monster from Minnesota? I've heard of it, I yes. guarantee you that that's a Giver stage eel. They actually photographed the rotting carcass with the entire town. Yes, I have heard about this photograph. Um, I may I have even seen the, it at one point. I got one of the only existing copies in a book that was loaned to me by a guy who stole it from um, that Pine um, County. Uh, it's either Pine County. It's not Pine Town anymore. The names have all huh. changed. But, Please? Um, Please send me a copy of that photograph, if you don't mind. I'll try. It's a really bad photo. Yeah. It's a really bad photo. Probably, what, a third-generation photocopy or something? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's really grainy. But anyway, um, business goes. Those county people would probably uh, want to take me to court if they knew I had that book. Yeah. Well, I can't. Anyway. I just want to see it, you know. Anyway, at Foyer's... Um, some of the chopped up fish were eels, but then there were slices like giant, you know, like giant uh, pickles on a hamburger, but they were five and a half feet across, and it My was God. fish gut. If you do your ratio of a thick-bodied eel, five and a half foot gut means that you might have an animal fifty-five feet or longer. Wow! And that was in Loch Ness. Yeah, it was um, the engineers. And the only reason I could get them to talk is because, see, as a detective, you got to know when to go and how to get them. They have really killer Christmas parties between the 18th and the 24th of December all around the lock. So I went to this huge Christmas party in Brockla, which is just north uh, along the lakeshore from Drum to Drocket, which is the big town where um, the Accord Castle is and all of that on the North Shore. It has its own little bay got that U-shaped bay. So anyway, I'm in Brockla, and they're having a big party at the Klansman Hotel. And these guys are uh, thoroughly drunk, and I'm teetotaling and pretending to be drunk, and I'm the fish guy. <laughs> and I get um, some of these guys that do the electrical and the, um, uh, the problems with the water drainage and the sewers, and they're telling me how uh, they find eels in the dead of winter, in the sewers. They find them everywhere. They even mm-hmm. find them out of the water, sliming around in the nooks and crannies where some of the bricks, bricks have fallen away, some of the stones have left these gaps. And they're not even in the water. And they're all just gathered around. And they're, you know, it's like in a cave. And they're, they're you know, and then they slip right into the water when you go to grab them or shine the flashlight at them. And then oh. I've got these other guys telling me the same thing at the power plant except that there was a slice of a fish that um, was, and the only thing it could have been was an eel because it was five and a half feet across. So it had to be from an eel. And there's also, they got eel infestations inside the old part of the hydroelectric power plant. They get eels in there and they can't get rid of them. They're like lampreys 
um, in some of those water systems, you know, going up the Mississippi River and um, into those areas near the Great Lakes where they set the traps for them. Yeah. And they're just, you know how dangerous lampreys are if they get into the well, Great Lakes. Before we run out of time, can you just give us a capsule explanation of the eunuch eel theory as developed by Roy Mackle and this Professor Brown? Oh, yeah, Brown? yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, this is very simple. You're not dealing with a new species that is carrying a sustained population. What you're dealing with individuals that go up the rivers from France, Scandinavia, uh, the United Kingdom, Japan, New Zealand, everywhere. And out of every 100 million or so, you've got one female that has the type of genetics that if for any reason she is prevented from returning to the ocean to breed between the length of three and six feet, and there's always females that are prevented by something, whether it's man-made or something else, they can't get back to the ocean. Most of them shed their teeth, sink to the bottom, and die. If the males can't get out, they sink to the bottom, shed their teeth, and starve to death. But every once in a while, you get a female that instead of going through your standard three growth phases, and, you know, from your leptocephalus to your elver and then to your adult stage eel, um, they go through additional growth phases. The uh, next growth phase, they grow to maybe 16 feet. And then they go to what the French call the Giver stage, and that's French medieval from the old monks doing their uh, handwritten parchments. They're called Givers. Giver is the spelling, but it's Givers, which means water dragon. And those can be over 20 feet long, and who knows how big they got. But they had reputations for pulling sheep out of, out of the land, crocodile style. They would grab sheep and pull them into the Seine River, and they do death rolls. Just like crops, wow. except faster. They can yeah, do it as fast as a motorboat propeller. This ties into all the old Orm legends and the Norwegian sea serpent stories and all that. It and there's even stories of Champ doing that back from like 1873. Nobody's exactly. Are you talking about the death roll and grabbing something from the sur- from the drinking uh, from the land? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well that's standard eel behavior. They feed when when they are stressed for food. They will feed like crocodiles. And everything that a crocodile does where it ambushes its prey from the water, the eel will do. And it'll death roll, and it'll death roll faster than a croc can death roll. Yeah. And if it's big enough, the teeth will be as big as crocs. Well, you know, it's it's a shame. I wish we'd have done a two-hour show because we obviously ran out of time to go over all the stuff. Well, you guys can do other shows with me. I got weeks of material. I yeah, got stuff we'll, on Bigfoot and we'll everything. Have to, we'll have to have you back if you're up for it. Yeah, definitely. It'd totally be my we, pleasure. Yeah. Um, well, we appreciate you, you coming much. on. Very knowledgeable. Thank you very much little, for being on the show. I'm feeling a little bad because I, that lady didn't get much of a word in. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. okay. I, well, I'll, I'll, let, I'll, let her, I'll let her take it on home here. Go ahead, Julie. Yeah, well, listen, I really appreciate um, you coming on. And so what you're saying basically is the creatures that people see, um, San Loch Ness and uh, Champlain Lake, you think they could just really be eels? 
Oh, absolutely. But eels that are over 20, 30, even 40 feet in length. And remember, I had fish tanks with both electric eels, which are knife fish, and, uh, you know, true eels, you know, um, anguilla ristrata, anguilla, anguilla. And they would gulp air. And as they gulp air, they would rotate their body into a dive. And the entire length of the body would ribbon into one hump and then a second hump and even a third hump in an animal over six feet in length. And both the electric eels were doing it, and the which were the non-true eels. And then the eel eels, the true eels, were doing the same thing, only they were more talented at it. I've seen up to three humps moving across the surface of my aquarium until they ran out of the length of the tail, and then it was two humps, and then it was one hump, and then the whole animal dives to the bottom. Well, That's that makes, that makes sense. Humps. We've, yeah. we've run out of time. Thanks very much, Bill, and it's been a great show. I appreciate yeah, you definitely. coming on. We'll definitely have them back. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thanks. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.